I am just discovering all kinds of there's really uh, really challenging things, really practical things in, in my study of these, these books, and I hope that, that you are too. Uh, we had the privilege, um, before this, we were at a, a larger church that had some unique things about it, and when you're in a large church, sometimes you can have, you can have a program for everything, and they had a, a, uh, a small group, a support group, uh, set free, they called it. It was Christ-centered um, uh, recovery groups. Uh, for for anger, for chemical addiction, sexual addiction, and and a variety of other things, and so they'd meet together for uh, kind of a teaching time, and then they'd break up into their groups. Well, periodically they have a testimony time where um, they'll all just come and share about uh, what God's done in their lives, especially in the area of of overcoming um, you know addictive habits and lifestyles, and uh, so we got the chance to go and be part of this and hear. Hear the testimonies, and what a joy to hear story after story of here's what God has done in my life. 20 years ago, I was doing this, and now I'm doing this. Or maybe 20 days ago, I was doing this, and now I'm doing this with, with the support of, of, um, of Christian Network and uh, coming together in Christ's name. What a privilege. But uh, something that stands out as we were in that group together and, and people were sharing was uh, one got up and they were just saying how thankful they were for these groups. And they said, uh, Emmanuel Faith's largest support group, I may have shared this before, says their largest support group meets on Sunday mornings in the worship center. And it's uh, 2,000 strong. It's the denial support group. So these are all the people who are not in some other support group. And I thought, well, in a sense, that there's some truth to that. You know, I think... Uh, we think of some, some glaring kinds of, you know, addictions or whatever, and then maybe we don't think so much about just the, the, the wrong ways th- uh, of thinking, unbiblical uh, ways of dealing with people. Um, maybe it's um, mil- manipulation habits or, or um, ways we shut people out or ways we, uh, we trample over people and are, are self-centered. And uh, these things just go on unchecked. And... W- I think our, the point of our passage today is that when these kinds of, of attitudes, when these kinds of uh, just sinful habits go unchecked, it eventually just leads to ruin in our lives. And I'm once again going to have to call on, uh, on our expert crew back there to, to click for me because I think I'm, I'm stuck somehow or I lost, I lost the, give me two seconds to see if this is going to click for me. Well, Maybe it just got too warm. I don't know. Um, there's, there's a seat back there that you, that's roughly where I'll be headed, so I'm sure you'll do fine. Uh, so our central truth this morning is that our lives tumble toward ruin when we don't stop and turn to God. And we'll see that uh, played out again and again. So sometimes that's in, in areas like you know a, a big full-blown addiction, alcoholism, pornography, chemical addiction, or whatever. But like I said, a lot of times it's just a real subtle thing that just goes unaddressed, and it sets its claws into our hearts and lives. And the longer we do that, we keep God at arm's length, we, we push him away, and unbeknownst to us, we are tumbling toward ruin. Uh, last week, uh, we looked at the first three kings of, of uh, Judah in the divided kingdom, uh, the ones in the south. Uh, it was kind of a tug-of-war as there was uh, bad king, bad king, good king. It's like this struggle back and forth. What will happen to 
to David's uh, dynasty. And so we, we saw, you know, Rehoboam, you know, kind of fail. Abijam, no. Asai, turn things around. It is great. Well, well, this week we're going to be introduced to the first six kings, or, or kind of seven, of, um, of the northern kingdom. And we'll see what kind of track record they have. Uh, and in the process, maybe more importantly, is we'll look at four ways that in our own hearts, in our own lives, we can stop the madness. <laughs> stop those, those habitual things that, are, that really wreak havoc in our own lives. So we are in 1 Kings, uh, picking up in the middle of the chapter of 15 at verse 25. And we will, uh, in a speedy kind of fashion, we will uh, we'll go through the end of chapter uh, 16. So we start off and we meet the heir of, of the, the king of Jeroboam. And that first king is Nadab, who follows his daddy in many ways. And so uh, picking up at verse 25 of chapter 15, it goes like this. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. That's not a real long reign. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of his father. And in his sin, which he made Israel to sin, he did not fall far from the tree. Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, he conspired against him, and Baasha struck him down at Gibeathon, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibeathon. So, when we're introducing these kings, I'd like to just kind of briefly point out four things. One is, how did their reign begin? Anything noteworthy that happened? Their, their evaluation by the author of kings? And, uh, and how they ended. So in the case of Nadab, well, he began because he was the son of the former king. So that's no, nothing too scandalous about that. Uh, what was noteworthy? What was mentioned about his reign? Well, what was mentioned was his assassination. <laughs> he was at war uh, against uh, the Philistines, and uh, he was slayed, struck down by one of his own, who took the throne from him. And the evaluation of his reign is he was evil. God says he's evil. He followed in the ways of Jeroboam. He did not turn things around. He just continued in the wickedness. And how did he end? Well, he ended in uh, being assassinated. And actually, his whole family was slaughtered. The whole royal family, a whole palace was, was murdered. Uh, so they were introduced to the first guy, off to kind of a, a rough start. Uh, we talked last uh, week about uh, the northern kingdom was like a flailing rock just tumbling down a hill, picking up speed. And the southern kingdom was like this tug of war of, will it be good, will it be bad? So let the flailing begin. So second followed him, uh, Baasha, who, who took the throne uh, by assassinating the former king. And what's noteworthy about his reign, and this is in uh, verses 33 through, um, through about verse 7 of the next chapter, what was noteworthy is that God sent the prophet Jehu to, to uh, wake him up and say, what are you doing? And to pronounce judgment on him if he continued in his ways. Even though he saw the fall of the king right before him, even though God spoke to him and gave him a personal message, he still continued in evil and, uh, <coughs> and ultimately went to ruin. So he began assassination, noteworthy, uh, 
he was, uh, got a personal message from God and ignored it. The evaluation in verses 30, verse 34 of chapter 15 says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. And his end was judgment. Chapter 16, verse 7. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanai, against Basha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands. And these two reasons, being like the house of Jeroboam and also because he destroyed it. A really interesting thing happening, and it makes me think of uh, Nebuchadnezzar later on, where this evil guy comes up and destroys um, the king. And that is the fulfillment of a prophecy against that king for the wickedness of his house. But the guy who did the destroying was still an evil guy. And so God's judgment against um, Baasha, he says, two problems with you. One is you were just like the king before you. And the other thing is, is you killed the king before you. And so I have all this against you. Okay, so then we're introduced to the next guy, Elah. You follow me? I'm just jumping through the through this uh, two chapters, verse eight to ten of chapter sixteen. In the twenty-sixth year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah the son of Baasha began to reign over Israel in Terzah, and he reigned there two years. But his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza who was over the household of Tirzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him. So, you see, it just goes one pathetic thing to another. Uh, where did his heir begin? Well, he, he was, uh, I mean, where did his reign begin? He was the son of the king. The end to a short dynasty. His claim to fame was that he was assassinated when he was drunk. That's what we're told about his reign. Who knows what else he did, but what gets written down in black and white is, here's the king that got really drunk, and then he was killed by one of his own. And uh, the evaluation of him is, once again, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So you can see the track record so far. And his end, well, ultimately his house was utterly destroyed according to the word of the Lord. All right. We're moving along, and we get introduced to Zimri. Well, we just kind of heard a little bit about him a minute ago. Verse 15 of chapter 16. In the 27th year of Esau, king of Judah. See, the author keeps placing this um, alongside what's happening in Judah. And the book, honestly, is a little confusing because it jumps north to south and talks about some here, then it goes back and forth. So this is just comments from the author to kind of place it in the scheme of things of what's happening in the south. So in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned for a whopping seven days in Tirzah. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. So all the troops are away at war, and uh, the king is home getting drunk, and he kills them. He's like, now I'm the king, uh, until the troops you know, get back uh, a week later. Um, and things are taken care of. Uh, so what was noteworthy is that he was king for seven days. Pretty impressive. Uh, what's even maybe more impressive is his evaluation. He was evil in the sight of the Lord. So how do you, in just seven days, of all the things you're going to do in your kingdom, you know, who are you going to appoint, what changes are you going to make, 
he had enough time to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord and promote idolatry right off the bat. So uh, pretty impressive in the most uh, pathetic way. And the end, uh, the army got back, and uh, they, the army had already decided that, well, the general, he's really going to be the ruler. They got back in the town. Uh, Zimri knew he was done for. He runs, he hides in the, the palace citadel and lights it on fire and dies inside. That ends his seven uh, days of glory. And he's followed by Omri, uh, who was the commander of the army. And we see this in verses 21 to 28. The army made him king, but for a period of a couple years, uh, there was still this uh, division where the, the nation didn't know who they're going to follow. Omri or this other guy. Uh, eventually, they sorted that out when the other guy mysteriously died. And... Uh, but here's what's interesting about uh, Omri's reign. What was noteworthy about it? In the Bible, we get just a few verses. Uh, basically, he moved the capital to Samaria. That comes into play later. We, we don't really know much else. In, in secular history, in archaeology, we know all kinds of interesting things. Um, in, in Assyria, uh, the archaeologists have found uh, multiple records that mention the house of Omri. In fact, they call Israel the house of Omri. It's like this, he's like the big name um, in, in Israel to those outside. Um, in 1868, the Moabite stone was found in, in Moab, of course. And it tells the story of, of Moab reclaiming territory that, that Omri had taken previously. And so everybody else in the world is talking about all these mighty things Omri did. And the Bible says, well, he moved the capital, and uh, besides that, he was just terrible. He was not just evil. We're going to say he's evil-er, if that's a word. I know it's probably not. Verse 25 says, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did more evil than all who were before him. And in the end, he died, and he left his kingdom to his, uh, quite honestly, pathetic uh, son, King Ahab. And he's the last one we're introduced to in the text this morning. Uh, from 29 to the end of the chapter, we get kind of an overview of, of Ahab. And we learn a lot more about him later on. So he began as the heir. What did he do that was noteworthy? He plunged the nation into new lows of idolatry and depravity and ruin. He just drove the nation completely into the ground. And God says, he was even more eviler. <laughs> it just gets worse. Uh, let's just read verses 30 to 33. Oh, yes, the scoreboard there. Good kings, zero. Bad kings, seven. So uh, verses 30 to 33 says, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. This doesn't surprise us. More than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he also took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and he served Baal, and he worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And what's his end? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Because the rest of the book, uh, several chapters, hones in on this kind of strange relationship between the prophet of God 
and, uh, and King Ahab. And they're, they're kind of battling back and forth, so to speak. And so we'll learn more about Ahab later. But, the, but the God's overarching uh, summary of him was he was just terrible. <laughs> terrible in rejecting God and terrible for the country. So one, one commentary uh, by Thompson and Bible Expository's commentary uh, said this about Nadab, the first of this uh, long list of kings. He says, This sad start, marked by rejection of the ways of God, illustrated very clearly what would be the fate of those kings who rejected the sovereignty of God and failed to recognize his covenant with his people. Alas, it was to be repeated many times over in Israel, and the writer of the book of Kings kept on making his point, as we shall see. So, we just get this litany of this king did evil, and then he was destroyed, and this king did evil, and he was destroyed, and over and over and over. But the real point, I think, for us, the real point for the original audience reading this, the, the captives in Babylon, is our lives, all of us, our lives tumble toward ruin when we don't stop and turn to God. This just tumbling, it just goes, this is how life's been, this is what I inherited, so I'm just going to do this, or these are the habits I've gotten, etc. And, and we don't just put a halt to it, it just goes down a path that ultimately ends in ruin. And so our question we're going to look at the rest of our time this morning is just, how do we stop that madness? <laughs> how do we put an end to the, the tumbling out of control, whether that's the full-blown addictions or those subtle sins that we just kind of gloss over and yet are pushing God at a distance because we never address them. And I think looking at the b- book of First and Second Kings as a whole, um, the, the answer is not so much in this passage here as in the, the big uh, flyby of the book when we see the major themes. And uh, looking back several weeks ago when we started, we saw uh, throughout these two books, uh, these themes kept popping up of take heart, know that God keeps his promises again and again and again. Uh, take inventory, evaluate what you really worship because the, these people had a constant problem with idolatry, uh, kind of like we do. Take courage to do the right thing even if it's hard and take it to God, cry out to him from your, from your mess. And so these are, these are kind of overarching lessons from the book and as the author shows us this, this succession of kings who just failed one after another, one after another, I think he's pointing us back to, here's what went wrong and here's how to fix it. And so we're going to look at four ways, four lessons, how we can stop the madness. And, and they kind of parallel these themes of the whole book. And we'll start, the first one is simply to seriously consider God's promises. The Bible has promises of hope and blessing and goodness, and I am so thankful for that. It's a, it's a delight to be in God's family. The Bible also has promises of warning. It's like, don't do this or terrible things will happen. And we see some of those in Kings. For instance, why did Nadab lose his throne and his whole dynasty was destroyed? Because God promised that was going to happen. Verse 29 of chapter 15, as soon as uh, the king, Baasha was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. And he left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he, until he had destroyed it. According to what? According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah. Later, why did Elah lose his throne and his life and his family? 
It's because God promised. Verse 12 of chapter 16, Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha according to the word of the Lord. Notice this pattern. Which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. I realize that I'm slaughtering all these kings' names, but they're, they're bad kings anyway, so that's what they get. <laughs> um, why did, we didn't even read this part, why did uh, he, Hiel lose both his oldest and his youngest son when rebuilding Jericho? It's because God promised. Here we see how the chapter ends, uh, chapter 16. It says he, this is uh, Hiel, he laid his foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Literally hundreds of years earlier, when they had first come into the promised land, and uh, their first major obstacle was, was Jericho and its massive walls, and most of you are familiar with the story, they marched around and around, and God miraculously uh, crumbled those walls, and then he came in and, and they took the city. And, and Joshua said a, um, he pronounced this uh, curse of God on anyone who tried to rebuild those walls. And so... Nobody did for a really long time. They just left him there. It was kind of a sacred, like, no, don't touch those walls. We, we know what happened there. Until uh, the time of Ahab, it just kind of shows what the country is like. Nothing's sacred. Who cares? Oh, I'm going to go rebuild those walls. And, uh, and sure enough, it cost him uh, two of his sons uh, in that process. Uh, some commentators think that that was actually uh, human sacrifices, like he intentionally uh, killed his sons because some of the idolatry that they were wrapped up in uh, had uh, human sacrifices involved. Uh, and others, just they, it, just, it just happened in the course of it. But in any case, it happened because God said, don't rebuild those walls, and he did it, and it happened exactly as he said. It came to ruin because they didn't consider God's warnings. So God is love. <laughs> he is hesed. It's a kind of a covenantal... Um, uh, covenant relationship love, uh, sometimes it's translated different ways in different, um, different versions. Um, steadfast love, um, uh, unending mercy, it's, it's translated some of those ways. God is all those things, a covenantal faithful love. And he's also a holy righteous judge. And this portion of kings really draws out the latter. These, these kings in charge of God's people had cast away the covenant and received the, um, the, the just judgment that uh, they brought on themselves. So when it comes to you and me, the place to start is to think seriously about God's promises, the, the loving, faithful ones, and also the, the, the warnings. And I just grabbed a couple, Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. It's like, uh, we, don't, we can't just disregard the fact that that God's a righteous judge and he's keeping accounts. Um, in the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 6, 27, talking about uh, adultery, the, the author says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? It's like, can you just, you know, heap, heap all these burning coals on you and think that there's not going to be consequences for that? No, there's going to be consequences for that. Psalm 73, the, the, the psalmist is. Uh, he starts out just so distressed by how he looks out at the world and it looks like the wicked do 
uh, prosper. It looks like the wicked are doing just fine, and they're the ones getting away with things. And then in verse 18, he says, But truly you, Lord, set them in slippery places, and you make them fall to ruin. And then later in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. And so the psalmist kind of comes full circle and, and realizes, Okay, God, in the end, you're, you'll take care of things, and, I, and I'm going to be fine with that. I watched a show recently that's uh, all about um, the UK's extensive network of uh, CCTV cameras. Uh, they're like recording everything in the, in the country, especially in the cities. And it's really kind of fascinating. Um, one is it's fascinating that, that people apparently don't know they're there a lot of times, even though while we were over in the UK, we saw signs, lots of places that says, you know, CCTV or whatever. Um, it's one... Uh, this one scene, it was really amusing. These guys are making an actual drug transaction right under the camera. It's pointed down, and they, could, they can maneuver these. And so there's just somebody in a control room, like, watching all these screens. And so you see them kind of looking one way, looking the other way, and then making the deal. And the camera is right, you know, right over them watching this go down. And it just made me think, you know, obviously the Lord sees what's going on, and, and he's, he's not going to be mocked. We're not... We're not getting away with things. And so I think the starting place is to seriously consider God's promises. And we need to move quickly from there to the second thing is just wholeheartedly worship God. Last week we saw uh, how to have a heart that was wholehearted for the Lord. And we talked about surrendering and just saturating in his word and just sacrificing those idolatrous things in our lives and calling out to him and seeking him. Well, all six of these kings that were fails, they all had the same problem. Their heart, their affection was not inclined to the Lord. They, uh, they kept him at a distance. They rejected him. They uh, ignored him, and they worshiped other things. Just like one of the real common phrases, verse 26, for he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. They loved, adored, they worshipped, they respected other things. Sometimes we do that. A lot of times we do that. In fact, I think we refuse to address the sinful habits in our lives because we love something else more than God. And I think that's kind of where it comes down. It's a it's a love story. <laughs> it's a br- fractured love story uh, often. Uh, Jesus himself uh, made these comments, uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, uh, 24. It says, uh, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. You can't, you can't love God and love money at the same time. And you can put a lot of other things in that, uh, in that slot. I think if you love comfort more than God, which uh, could be a tendency of mine, it's just like I like to be comfortable. If you love comfort more than God, you, you won't get out of bed to spend time with God in the morning. If you love that, that rush of a, of a lustful fantasy more than you love God, well, you won't make a covenant with your eyes and your heart. It just won't be a big enough priority. If you love your reputation more than God, well, you'll probably never really talk about your faith with your neighbors because, oh, I don't know, what will they think? That might 
be negative on my reputation. If you love your possessions more than God, well, you're not going to give generously to God as he has asked us to do, and, uh, and on and on. So it's a problem of where our love is. So we know in our heads, I think, that God is the most worthy of all of our love, our adoration, our worship. But until you realize that and you just wholeheartedly worship him, then you'll just stay stuck. And that's a terrible place to be. So with heart turned toward God, it's time to make the break. And our third thing is just courageously turn from sin. I am thankful for Asa last week that we were introduced. After bad king, bad king, we got good king. <laughs> After two generations of, of familial uh, rejection of God, Asa stands up and says, no, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to get rid of idolatry. I'm even going to kick my own grandma out of the house because she set up all this idolatr- idolatrous stuff. So it gets, you know, real serious and personal. And uh, it's so encouraging that we see this dramatic change. But in this week's passage, nobody did that. They just, evil, okay, they take it, they become evil, they take the evil, they become evil, take it, become more evil. Next guy even tops that, becomes more evil, and it just goes unchecked on and on. So if you've been drifting <laughs> or flailing even or tumbling, uh, take courage and, and turn from sin. Look at Esau and say, this, this can be done. <laughs> look at the prodigal. Look at Christ's open arms saying, uh, I know you've wandered far, but uh, I'm still here. I'm running towards you. Is this difficult? <laughs> yes, of course it is. That's why we had the fourth thing is we need to just desperately cry out to God for his help. Interesting progression of the kings. In, in fact, we, we talked this morning around our tables at the 9 o'clock hour uh, looking at this psalm and talking about some of the other psalms of David where he, he praised God uh, in hard times and in good times. And he cried out to God from his trouble. And so we see David uh, kind of held up as the example of a king after God's own heart. We see him uh, calling on God day and night, good and bad. And then we see uh, Jeroboam, who only called on God maybe once, and that's when his, he stretched out his hand to, uh, to uh, accuse the prophet, and it got stuck that way. And so, you know, please, Lord, help my arm. That's when he called on God. And then these first six kings uh, that we looked at today, they never call on God at all, even when things are terrible. Even when they're being uh, chased for their life and they're, they're being uh, sought to be assassinated and their kingdom's falling apart, we never hear them calling on God. So this progression. Going back to David, uh, I love uh, Psalm 40, the first few verses. This should, be, this should be our attitude. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. That just makes me take a deep breath. <laughs> I, I put my trust in him. And he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. And he drew me up from the pit of destruction. He drew me up out of the miry bog, and he set my feet on a rock. He made my steps secure, and he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Has it been a while since there's been a real song in your heart and in your mouth? And what will happen? Many will see, and they'll fear, and they'll put their trust in the Lord. It's just 
you know, instead of this cycle that gets worse and worse and worse, we see we stop and we trust in the Lord and cry out to Him, and He puts a song in our heart, and He puts joy in us, and He, he reestablishes our footsteps, and people around us start to notice, and they start to turn to God, and things spiral, spiral, spiral up in glorious ways. I've been stuck in actual uh, miry bog, and uh, I'm going to tell you that story another time. And, and really, I've been stuck in a spiritual miry bog, too. And I know in either case, it's the best feeling to be drawn out, <laughs> to be lifted up, to put a, a song of joy in our hearts once again. And the way to get out of being stuck, the way to stop the madness is, is just these four things. Take real serious God's promises, uh, all of them, the real fun ones and the real you know, hard ones. And then just turn your, your whole affections to God. He's so worthy of, of worship. Then just make today, right now, the day where you just courageously turn from that sin that's been wreaking havoc in your soul. And all the while from beginning to end, we just need to call out to God, say, help me. Help me, Jesus. I need your strong arm. I need you to lift me up because this, this miry clay, this bog, I can't dig myself out. That's, that's the essence of the gospel anyway, is not us reaching up, but God reaching down. So we call on him. If I could just summarize, you know, leaving here, what's the challenge is to make a fresh start today. You've been worn down. You're just keeping that cycle of whatever is going on that's keeping you at arm's distance from God and it's hurting your relationships, is souring your, your joy in your life, uh, make a fresh start to turn from that and turn to Christ. I, I'd love to just pray for you in that, and I invite you to, um, if that's your heart's desire today, to make a, make a solid break, make a change. Um, I just want to give you a couple invitations one is if you want to just take that card in front of you connect card and and just let me know and i'll be praying for you about whatever that thing is in your life and you don't you don't need to spell it out but just let me pray for you You just drop that in that wood box on the way out and and i'll grab those and in this week be praying along with you calling out to god on your behalf um others of you maybe you'd like to do just business with the lord right now and uh after the service as everybody jets off to uh to potluck next door if you want to come here and, and just, just pray at the, the front of the church. Um, it'll be, my wife and I will be down here and be open to, to pray with you if you'd like to pray with somebody or if you'd just like to, just you and Jesus, that's totally fine too. I am pretty sure that there'll still be food over there when you make it to the end of the line. And if, there, if there's not any food, if you were stuck here praying and they ran out of food, then I will get you some food somehow. So um, I'll, I'll just try to put, you know, Release, relieve your fears about that. Let me, let me just pray for us right now, and the, the team will come up and, and close. Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful that we can call on you, and you hear us, even from our, our desperate places, even from dark places. You, you are attentive, and you are, are mighty to save. You're, you're just anxious and excited to, to change a life and to infuse it with your grace, to redeem things that are all messed up and, and turn them